I don't do well with blood, uh, which is not that uncommon, uh, but when you're in ministry and do hospital visits fairly often, it can become uh, kind of an issue. I remember when I was first starting in ministry, one of the first hospital visits I ever did, a lady was having shoulder surgery, and so I thought, I'll go, and I'll, I'll pray with her, she'll go back, I can, uh, you know, go back to the office, whatever, and uh, as we're in the course of talking, they come in to draw her blood to make sure, you know, the thinners are out of her system and everything, and uh, no big deal, they draw her blood, I know this about myself, so I kind of just look away, and, and we continue to talk, and uh, even now as I retell this story, I feel the phenomenon of what I felt in that moment, my hands are draining of their blood, they're getting cold, my face is starting to drain, and I thought, you know, I need to, I need to just step out and, and get a drink. The doctor came in to talk with her before the surgery, and so I went to the nurse's station, and I said, hey, can you tell me uh, where the nearest water fountain is? And she was kind of doing some paperwork, and she said, just right down the, and then she looked up and paused, and she said, you don't look very good. And I said, yeah, I don't feel very good. And so what was supposed to be just a praying over shoulder surgery ended with me in the nurse's station uh, eating graham crackers and drinking orange juice to get my blood sugar up. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't even, when I give blood, I don't even try to sit upright anymore. I'm like, just lay me back. I'm going to end there eventually anyway. But th- there's just something about blood that is unpleasant. You know, that, that salty iron smell or, or the connotation of pain and violence. You know, if, if everything is as it should be, most of the time, our blood should be very much on the inside of us. And yet, when it comes to church life, we talk an inordinate amount about blood. You know, we sing songs like, Love ran red, or, or nothing but the blood. A communion, we talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. Revelation 7.14, just one of the verses that talks about blood, talks about them washing their robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. And you have to think, if somebody walked into a church on a Sunday morning having nothing, no knowledge of what this is about, no knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, walked in for the very first time, this has to seem like some kind of weirdo cult going on here. But this is not a new occurrence. In the first century, as Christianity was forming, as churches were forming, they were often accused of being cannibals because of the stories of them sharing in the, uh, the meal, of drinking the blood and eating the body of their leader. But have you ever stopped to wonder, we, all of this talk about blood, all of what Jesus' blood it means for us, have you ever stopped to wonder, why blood? You know, why in talking about what Jesus has done for us, uh, or in singing in our worship, does blood come up so often? And I have to think, in you know, a world so quick to sanitize and sterilize, how do we deal with this messy grotesqueness of the blood? I think in order to answer that question, we have to take just a couple of steps back to answer that question of why blood, to look at the very way that we relate to God. You've probably heard it said before that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and maybe you've even said that yourself. And I don't want to rain on your parade, but strictly speaking, that's not entirely true. Christianity is definitely a religion. It has set habits of belief. Prayer is part of religion. Reading the Bible, singing songs of worship, sharing our faith, all of those are religious practices. And I understand the sentiment of that statement, that Christianity isn't a, a dead and dusty set of rituals that we go through, that we have a real relationship with a resurrected living Lord. And so what we mean by that statement is that Christianity is not simply religious, that we aren't just called to ritual. But what does it mean to be in relationship with God? If you're asking this question with the book of Hebrews in front of you as we are this morning, the resounding answer to that question would be covenant. Covenant is a word used more in Hebrews than in any other book of the New Testament. 
that we are in a covenant relationship with God. Which I'll admit sounds very churchy, but it's actually an incredibly important distinction in the way we think about how we relate to God. Think about all the different kinds of relationships you have in your life. If you're a spouse, if you have a husband or a wife, you are a part of one of these covenants. This covenant relationship that's kind of found in, in, in love and formed in love, but it's also bound by law. It's not simply love. There is a legal aspect to it. Or you think about the relationship with your, your kids. Or, or the varying degrees of friendships that you have. You have these best friends that you've been friends with for decades. Uh, and then you have, you know, neighbors that you're friendly with. And you have Facebook friends, many of whom you've probably never even met. We have relationships with our, our pets and maybe even food. But I, I hope you don't say, I love my wife, with the same kind of love you say, I love tacos. You know, this is, there should be a distinction there. But, but a covenant is a relationship that obviously extends beyond this taco-type relationship. A, a biblical covenant, the way that we relate to God, is really defined in three primary ways. And the first is that a covenant is a sacred bond. And, Jesus, and God, in the Old Testament, choosing the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, says it this way. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. When you look at the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, his love for them was a choice. He didn't choose them because they, they had done anything to earn it or because they were particularly special. In fact, it says quite the opposite. He says, I chose you because you were the fewest of all people. Of all of the nations to pick, he picked Israel. That if, if this was a game of dodgeball, picking Israel would be like picking the scrawny, nerdy kid with his glasses taped together because he'd been hit by the, in the face by the ball so often. And what God is saying is, I, I chose you despite yourself. And this bond that God forms... It's not based on emotion. It's not based on how he feels that day. It's not based on our worthiness. It's based entirely on his love for us. It's kind of like being a parent. You know, I always love my kids, but I don't always like my kids, you know. I'm sure some of you can feel that. But there's also nothing that they could do that would make them any more or less my sons. My love for them and their position in my life is not determined by how I feel about them at any given moment. And that leads to the second tenet of what a covenant is, that it's sovereignly initiated, which is a fancy way of saying the people who has the higher position sets the terms of the covenant. Again, applying it to children, when you are having the dinner battle with your kids, you have an opportunity as the higher person in charge to say, you're not getting your dessert until you eat your dinner. You set the terms. Uh, what's going to happen if your kid comes to you before the dinner and says, you know, I'm initiating the terms of my covenant eating my dinner tonight. Please sign here, here, and initial here that all desserts will be given henceforth prior to dinner being served. You know, that, you'd be like, keep dreaming, kid. That's not happening. I set the rules here. And so in a covenant, a king would, uh, of a greater kingdom would go to a tiny one and, and say, hey, let's make a deal. I'll offer you protection and resources and everything you need as long as you pledge your loyalty, loyalty to me. But if you go back on our deal, then there will be consequences. Or at least that's how most covenants went. But when God made a covenant, he did it a little differently. In Genesis 15, we see one of these covenants taking place between God and Abraham, that God has promised Abraham this nation of descendants and a land that they would call their own. 
He's setting the terms of the covenant. He's saying, Abraham, if you are faithful, because of your faith, I will give you these things. And yet, in the act of this, he has Abraham do something kind of peculiar. Abraham brings a cow and a goat and a ram and a couple of birds, uh, and he is ordered to cut them in half and kind of set them on each side to form this aisle away. And so you have this aisle of blood and guts and entrails and for these two parties to walk through in this symbolic way. It's an act of saying, you know, if either of us breaks our side of the covenant, may we be like these animals. But here's the amazing thing about that story. When it comes time for Abraham and God to walk through this aisleway, for them to pledge that if anyone fails to live up to their end of the deal, then they deserve death. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and he walks through the aisle alone. God accepts the responsibility of the covenant for both parties upon himself. In effect, what he's saying is, if you or your descendants break this covenant, Abraham, I will offer my life as the penalty. I will go through the deaths that you deserved. Which brings us to the third tenet of this covenant, that a covenant is made in blood. And it also brings us back to that question, why blood? You know, why have this messy aisleway of animal carcasses? I mean, can a handshake not suffice in a situation like this? Uh, why have all of these animal sacrifices over and over, year after year, with the slicing and the slaughtering and the sprinkling? And it all comes down to that sin leads to death. So the consequence of our sin leads to death. And, and we touched on this last week. We, we talked about God's holiness. But because of his holiness, he is incompatible with sin. That God is so opposite of what sin is that sin will be destroyed in his presence. And so to be sinful people in the presence of a holy God leads us to experience destruction. But God is not just holy, he is also loving. And because of his great love for us, God doesn't want to see us destroyed, and so he provided a way out. Because blood represents life, God allowed the blood of animals, bulls and goats, to, to cover our guiltiness for a time. Leviticus 17.11 says of it this way, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You see, because of sin, humanity was deserving of the death penalty. Blood was demanded because of what we have done. And so God made a concession for a time that the blood of animals could cover our guilt. Animal sacrifices were a grisly reminder that sin has terrible consequences. And the only remedy for it is the shedding of blood. And reminder is really the key word of what this is all about. I think of it this way. A couple of months ago, a memory popped up on one of my social medias that uh, on the day that it happened was a very bad day for me. Uh, we were still living in the Midwest, and so we had just gotten back from a 22-hour trip to Florida. We had driven straight through. We were all tired and on edge. And as if that day wasn't enough of a challenge already, two-year-old Chandler decided to expand his brain further and test the properties of gravity and inertia by chucking his water bottle straight at our TV. Uh, it barely hit it, just the bottom corner, but it was enough to shatter the entire screen of my 10-month-old dream TV. Now, as a two-year-old, there was nothing he could do to fix it. He has no money, he has no ability to fix it, and so the punishment was no week of TV. The punishment would not bring the TV back, but for him, it was a reminder that every day he would ask to watch the show, and he would be reminded of the decision that he had made. And on a much larger and grislier scale, animal sacrifices were kind of the same way. 
They couldn't fix the problem. They couldn't fix our sin problem, but they served as a reminder of our sin. There was nothing that we could do to to fix our our sin, but we needed to be reminded of it, of our need for salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says it this way. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews is saying that because all these animal sacrifices only served as a reminder of the sin that gripped us, they aren't just offered once and go away. They're offered year after year, over and over. The high priest would enter the most holy place on the Day of Atonement and would offer the blood of bulls and goats as this reminder of sin. Year after year, it would kick the can a little bit further down the road. It would cover sins for one more year until the whole thing needed to be repeated over and over again while never truly fixing the problem. He says it was a shadow of the things that were coming. In other words, I, th- I think those, those sacrifices were kind of like a toy vacuum cleaner. Both of my boys, for whatever reason, love to vacuum, and I don't know why, they're weird kids, uh, but when Chandler was little, and then I was passed on to Brannigan, uh, he wanted to vacuum all the time, but we didn't want him to be hauling our big old vacuum out of the, the closet, and so we got this little Walmart special, and uh, you know, it makes fake noise and blows around fake dust, has a fake brush on the bottom and a fake dirt collector, and uh, you know, tragedy of tragedy, the batteries are dead right now, and so that's a real, you know, shame in our house, but... You know, nobody would look at this vacuum cleaner and mistake it for the real thing. Nobody would look at this and, and think that that must be the reality in itself. That this only exists because there's a greater reality of a real vacuum cleaner out there somewhere. This only exists as a shadow, as a copy of the real thing. Which, of course, leads us to Jesus. That Jesus is the reality and everything before him pointed to him. Jesus is the sacrifice that we always needed, the only sacrifice that could satisfy the holiness and the love of God. God's holiness demanded that sin be dealt with through the shedding of blood, human blood. But his love meant that he would shed his own blood, that he would walk through the pieces as he did with Abraham, that he would go to the cross, that he would fulfill the covenant consequences that should have been ours to pay. And so to atone and pay for human sin, God would become human to spill human blood. And in his perfection, Jesus offered us the sacrifice that was sufficient to finally satisfy the penalty. Chapter 9, verse 12 says it this way, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the asses of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremoniously unclean Sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant." You see, it's through Jesus' blood that we have entered into a new kind of relationship, a new covenant with God. It's through Jesus' blood that we are no longer under the death penalty because Jesus took on the penalty for us. 
It's through Jesus that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied, and now we get to stand innocent in his eyes. Even though we should have been the ones to pay, uh, to walk through the animal carcasses, even though we could have never paid for the TV, even though we were completely undeserving of that kind of grace, God's love made a way. And this love doesn't just satisfy the requirements of his holiness, but it allows us to enter into a totally new kind of relationship with him. A new kind of covenant. A covenant not written on stone, but on our hearts. That we are now changed from the inside out. That our, our list of behaviors that we could never stand up to is no longer the requirement for us. And is no longer pushed a little bit down the road by the sacrifice of animals, but that is taken care of once for all by the blood of Jesus. This covenant where God is no longer distant or foreign, but can be known intimately through Jesus. This covenant that doesn't need to be renewed over and over and over through the blood of animals, but where our sins have been taken care of once for all time. And so again, we come back to this question, why blood? And the answer is because the blood of Jesus is the only hope that we have. The death that he died and the new life that we get to live and he lives through his resurrection gives us a standing before God that we could have never had without him. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, what have you not submitted to be cleansed by the blood of Christ? We like to offer subpar sacrifices, not animals, but other attempts to cover our sin. We say, you know, I've, I've tried to be a good person. Or I've done more good stuff than bad stuff. That has to count for something. You know, I've been really generous and charitable. I try to be kind. And all of those are, are, are good things. I'm glad that we do them, but they will never be enough. It's only trusting in the blood of Jesus and submitting our lives to him that will satisfy the debt that we owed. The other question I want to ask, maybe the flip side of the first one, is what are you not allowing Jesus' blood to fully cover? What are you still carrying the weight of? What sin are you still being under the burden of? Whatever guilt you're carrying, if you've turned it over to Jesus, if you have repented of it, if you leave it at the foot of the cross, leave it there. That Jesus' sacrifice is more than sufficient for you. His blood was spilt so that you would continue to find freedom in him, not, not carry the weight of your sin. The freedom that comes from a true covenant relationship with a God that loved us enough that he would die for us. So that he could experience us through our eternity that he would give up his life. This is the God that we serve. So the blood of Jesus is greater than any sin that we could have committed, any, any guilt that we carry, any shame that we have. So give it to him. Jesus is a faithful high priest. He knows what he, we have experienced. He has walked the life that we have walked, and he did so perfectly so that he could be the perfect sacrifice so that we could walk with him in freedom. So why blood? So we could live. Blood was spilled so that we could have a relationship with him. Don't let that sacrifice be in vain. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We often sing about blood and we read about blood and we kind of become desensitized 
the fact that we're talking about blood. This grotesque reality that oftentimes shows that everything is wrong. But in you, Jesus, blood shows us that everything has been made right. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. That when the covenant was made and we broke the terms, when we sinned, you didn't say you will now be like these animal carcasses that I will take your penalty. I will die the death that you deserve to die. That despite your perfection, Jesus, you would sacrifice yourself that we could live in you. And so Jesus, that is our prayer this morning, that we would continue each and every day to live in you. That we would not let your sacrifice be in vain, but that we would continue to trust in you. Despite our past, despite our our circumstances, that we would give it over to you. That you have satisfied the requirement through your holiness and through your love. Show us a better way. Jesus, please help us to walk in that better way. Covered by your blood, washed white, pure, because of what you have done for us. We pray this, Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.